Okay, well, we're going to go ahead and get started tonight, um, and uh, we're going to continue on in the book of James chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to probably get into some a uh, little bit of some heavier subject matter. Um, I'm not sure exactly how far we're going to go. Uh, the more I'm sitting down here reading through it and going through it and other verses keep coming to mind, I keep writing down notes and more notes and more notes. So um, there's there, there's a lot of stuff to, to discuss with it and talk about it, but we'll, we'll get into that in just a minute. But let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer um, and we will get going here. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again for the time uh, that we have here tonight to uh, just spend uh, looking into your word, uh, receiving instruction and knowledge of you. And Lord, I just pray that uh, as we endeavor to do that tonight, that Lord, um, we would just be blessed by um, your Holy Spirit uh, teaching us and guiding us as we go through this passage. I pray, Lord, that all of it uh, with our heart intent and uh, with the words that are spoken would be um, uh, just glorifying to you and uh, pleasing in your sight. That, Lord, it wouldn't be about uh, what we think, what we believe, but uh, very clearly what your word points out and uh, very clearly what uh, uh, your plan is and has been from the very beginning. I thank you again, Lord, for all that you've done for us, above all, uh, the work that was uh, done on the cross and through your resurrection, that uh, we may have eternal life through you. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would never take that for granted or ever slight it, but, Lord, we would just use it to grow in our knowledge of you and grow in our love for you every single day. Thank you again for those that are here, and I pray that uh, just all of our hearts would be ready to receive what you have for us. And this I ask in your Son's precious and holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so in James chapter 2, we had, uh, <coughs> pardon me, left off uh, right there kind of uh, talking about uh, this, uh, a little bit of the biased judgment that was there. We had gone through uh, a few passages uh, kind of discussing some of those uh, things of the royal law. We find over there, obviously, in Matthew and in Mark, uh, when the uh, when the Lord is, uh, if you will, sometimes being tempted and being asked, uh, what is the, the greatest law? He obviously says, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy might. Uh, in, you know, other areas it says with mind as well. But, uh, and we find that obviously over there in the book of Deuteronomy. But we also find that he says in the second is like unto the first, which is love thy neighbor as thyself. We talked a little bit about the parable that he gave of the Samaritan, known as the good Samaritan. Uh, and that's, again, something that we want to keep in mind with that good part, uh, as it is uh, often referred to. Uh, and we found that, that parallel Deuteronomy 6.5, which is a commandment that was given to the nation of Israel, that they were supposed to love their neighbors, those that were around, the other countries, uh, the other individuals that uh, were in their, uh, if you will, their cities, and, and those that were around. It was about uh, the treatment of other individuals. And uh, what we see here, uh, as we kind of continue on, uh, we find that he begins discussing this subject matter about biased judgment, and we find that the context of it was right there in verse 10 that says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. And as we pointed out, the wrong kind of judgment, judgment that is uh, based off of something that is self-serving, self-pleasing, um, that is a sinful form of judgment. Now, now here's the thing. God gives us such great gifts. We have the, we, we, we have liberty in Christ. We have, uh, um, we have, uh, uh, you know, the ability to, to, to do things, to make things, to be creative, uh, to be imaginative, to, um, uh, um, you know, work with each other and so on and so forth. But man typically takes what God has given him and just corrupts it. Just, just, I mean, just fills it with sin, fills it with all sorts of other things. Whether it's relationships with the other people, whether it is uh, something that is enjoyable, such as, you know, the Lord giving us the ability to think and to plan and to build things. People 
build certain buildings or something of that nature, and then people use it to build something that is an abomination to God. Uh, we find that over there in the book of Genesis when they went about to go uh, build the, the Tower of Babel. Here God had given them such, you know, great knowledge in, to be able to do those type of things, to build such uh, uh, amazing things, and they use them totally incorrectly. Um, and they go about and they build this, sorry, building this tower, and God says, we're going to stop this. And he confounds their languages. Now, again, we always want to make sure that we use that right word, confound. I was just reading that the other day. Uh, it's not the word confuse, it's the word confound, and there are two different words. we got to be careful, because God is not the author of confusion. But he does confound people with the way he behaves and the way he acts and what he says. Meaning that it causes people to sit there and go, wait, what? Right. And, and, and kind of, they don't understand. It's not that they're confused by God, it's that they're not understanding what God is doing. So we, we, we've got a, that's kind of a side note there. But here in verse 11, he said, for he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. I mean, that, that makes sense. And he takes two things that may seemingly be harmless, what something would be considered, if you will, some sort of consensual Act versus something that is non-consensual. Generally, most people do not want to be killed. And something that is very, if you will, extreme and violent, God makes this comparison and says they're kind of one and the same. Because again, now, God does have, if you will, so the way he looks at sin, he does look at some sins very differently. Go over to Proverbs chapter 6, and he calls certain ones abominations. And we need to understand that. Because again, we as our, as believers need to make sure that we keep anything that is even remotely close to being an abomination out of our lives. And as we look at it here, he's basically saying that sin is sin. If you're going to transgress, you're going to transgress the law. In one point, you're going to transgress in all of it. You're going to be wind up guilty of all of those things. And, and I've seen it before where individuals will, will go through the, if you will, the Ten Commandments and begin showing how everybody is guilty of those things. And then when it comes to that, you know, thou shalt not kill, uh, people will always be willing to jump up and down and say, oh, hey, well, uh, at least I haven't killed somebody. Well, congratulations. Not everybody gets to say that, right? But, you know, at some point in time, uh, they're going to say, well, you know, hey, I haven't committed that, so I've got to be somewhat good. But the fact is, is that our, our, our sins are what are, is, is what nailed Jesus to the cross. While he did it willingly, he did it because of our sins. So therefore, we are guilty of that. We're guilty of, if you will, even killing ourselves. As Paul talks about over there, sin revived and I died. Sin slew me. Why? Because he decided to make a choice to do something sinful rather than to do the what is right. Do what God has instructed him to do. So we find this uh, going on here as he begins to, to, to identify. And the reason that this becomes necessary is again because of who he is talking to. And as we start getting into the second part of this chapter, we're going to start getting into some of these heavier subjects. But but I want us to understand this. He's talking to Jewish believers as we established that from the very beginning. Now, this book is written in such a way that it is pertinent to those that will be after us. That means that he's writing this book, if you will, to tribulation believers. Now, those tribulation believers are, 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 are going to go, be going through a very, very, very rough time. And those type of believers are Jewish in nature. Because as you go through and you start seeing what God talks about in the book of Matthew, and we'll look at this in just a second, uh, in the book of Matthew, it's all about the kingdom of heaven and how to get entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, how do you get through the tribulation period alive so that you can enter into that kingdom? And enter into it and be, if you will, 
be on the Lord's side versus being excluded, being those that do not get to participate in certain things, those that are, if you will, without the city and so on and so forth. God has a very specific purpose and reason behind why he does all these things. And we'll talk about that in just a minute as well. But again, one main principle that he's teaching here, that regardless of whatever time you were in, is the way that God views sin is that it is exceeding sinful. And he does not want any believer to be engaging in that, according to Romans chapter 10, uh, or excuse me, Romans chapter 6, verse 2, where he says, God forbid. Should we continue in sin? It says in the very first uh, verse in Romans 6, and what does he say in verse 2? God forbid. We are not to continue in those things. Now, sometimes believers do mess up. Sometimes we do sin. That's the important part about confession. That's the important part about repentance and the important part about correction and why we've got to get those principles down in our life. But what we find here is we find these believers that he's writing to very specifically are wanting to enter into that kingdom. They're wanting to come back to the nation of Israel and enter into that kingdom that God has promised them. That's what the Jew wants. That's what the Jew has been promised, which is why he begins to talk about that, uh, or why he mentions that a little bit uh, uh, further up there, where he starts talking about in verse 5, talking about God choosing the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, which he promised to them that love him. Now, he's not talking about eternal life there. He's talking about that physical kingdom. He's not talking about kingdom of God. He's talking kingdom of heaven. He's talking to Jewish believers. They are heirs to that. We are heirs to eternal life. We're not heirs to anything physical here on earth. There's a group of individuals running around and claiming that we're the nation of Israel and so on and so forth. Well, if we claim we're the nation of Israel, then um, we've got some big problems because we will be going through the tribulation. <laughs> And uh, with all due respect, I don't even want any part of that. I don't want any part of that at all. Because it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And as he says over in Matthew chapter 24, that if he doesn't, if the days weren't shortened, there wouldn't be any flesh left. And he's shortening it for the elect's sake, specifically speaking of the Jewish people. And very clearly... God has a plan with that. Again, he's purging Israel. He's getting them ready to receive their kingdom and their king, Jesus Christ, as he comes back at the second advent. And he, as he's walking through this, he's getting to a pattern of, this is how you're going to need to behave during that period of time. Now, we think we've got it bad today because we've got some persecution that is really starting to get an uptick. Uh, I, I follow uh, an individual. That he he sends me emails. Uh, it's uh, it's organization organization he does, um, uh, and uh, he he sends these emails out and he walks through all of these things that are happening in churches in the United States of America, not in other countries. Talking about persecution that's going on, talking about people walking into church services, um, uh, killing members and congregants during the services. Um, you know, we're talking about very, very much people that hate God and hate Jesus Christ. And we're not talking about mentally ill people, okay? We're not talking about somebody that is, uh, 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 that has a mental illness or a mental, uh, um, disability. We're talking about people that have a heart problem. And that heart problem is towards God and that hatred has consumed them to the point of where they, they, they think that it is the right thing to do to kill Christians. And that's happening here in the United States. Now that's happened all around the world and people know that. But as we see those persecution uptick, you know, we start doing things, we start behaving differently. Well, they, the, the believer in the tribulation period, they still have to maintain certain works that God has ordained to them. Go back over there that you see in, in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, 
All those things with Matthew, that he goes about telling them, these are the commandments that you need to make sure that you're following through. Because again, that's his desire. They're going to be persecuted, but at the same time, they need to make sure that they're treating people right. Especially the brethren. Especially the brethren. Man, the church would be in such a huge mess right now if the tribulation was actually occurring right now. Based on the way that we treat people. Based on the way that we treat other brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is what he's getting at here. This is a unification, if you will. He's wanting to make sure that, 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 that we're not preferring the things of the world. Over in 1 John chapter 2, he says, love not the things of this world. Turn over there. I don't know. I can't remember if I, we, we, we read that last week, but it's always a good one to read. <clears throat> but uh, he, he, he very clearly points out <clears throat> in 1 John chapter 2, and in verse 15, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So he makes it very clear here that this, again, this book being written to those believers as well, they get this understanding of, hey, there's certain ways that you're supposed to love. Yeah, God has a standard of how people are supposed to love, and it's not the way that the world thinks it is. The way the world thinks it is, uh, thinks love is, is all about lust. It's all about flesh. It's all about pleasure. It's all about sensation. It's all about uh, um, how how we feel and what our opinion is, and people fall in love and fall out of love, and all of this stuff. And by, it, it, that's that's not love. Because that's not the way God's love is. Aren't you glad God doesn't uh, fall out of love with you? Man, we'd be in so much trouble. We'd be in a serious, very serious spot. But he doesn't. He loves us. He cares about us. Nothing's going to separate us from the love of God, according to Romans chapter 8. That that is such a great, precious promise. It's not the way the world says love is. So we have to start using God's definition of love. And I've said this time and time again. You know, if the definition of love, as God says here in in 1 John, the definition of love is, it says God is love. That's what real love is. That's what real love is. He demonstrated real love on the cross. He demonstrated real love through his resurrection. He demonstrated real love by exercising, as it says, the faith of Christ to do those works that God sent him to do. That's real love. The stuff that we see in today's day and age, it's not all, that's not love. Somebody wants love and wants a loving relationship. God has to be a part of it. If God is not a part of it, it's a kind of a fake love. It may look like love on the surface to the world, but deep down, it's not the same thing. You're like, well, I know believers that love each other. Not the way that God does. Not according to his standards, which is where we're at over here in in James chapter 2. God's standards. God's standards is, is you offend at one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. Could you imagine that? There you are. Driving along the road. Get pulled over for speeding. I argue with the officer. Oh, no, no, I wasn't speeding. I'm speeding. He's got me on radar. He goes in, I go into court, start arguing the ticket, trying to get it to somehow, you know, reduced or uh, get out of it or whatever it may be. And the judge says, sorry, I'm going to have to sentence you to prison for 30 years. Like for going six miles an hour over the speed limit? He goes, yeah, because if you violate just that one law, that one traffic law, 
you're guilty of vehicular manslaughter. You're guilty of, uh, uh, um, you know, driving under the influence. You're, and you're like, wait, whoa, hold on a second. People would argue that. And people today argue that when it comes down to salvation. Well, I'm not that bad. In the eyes of the Lord, you just offended every single last thing that he put down. And think about that. God goes through the process of giving us commandments so that we can demonstrate that we love our neighbors and that we love God. And then we just kind of go and start violating them left and right. To a degree, I can see why God would say, yeah, you're guilty of it all. Because you completely disregarded the word of God. That's the way that a human operates. And here we see this, and he says uh, uh, in, in this uh, verse 12, going back to James chapter uh, 2, he says, So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Now, this is important, because again, we establish the law of liberty being related to the word of God. We can see the law of liberty in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can see the law of liberty and how he demonstrates all of these things that we have uh, through him. Even though the, the, the nation of Israel had several thousand commandments, they still had a lot of liberty. A lot of liberty. And he says, you're going to be judged by the word of God. You're going to be judged by the law. The law of liberty. The law that sets people free. What did you do with Jesus Christ? What did you do with the life that was given to you? How did you treat other people? How did you treat believers? Did you show the love of God? Did you show compassion? And as he goes down here a little bit further, did you show mercy? So here we are, men are going to be judged by God's laws. Uh, just very quickly, go over to uh, the book of Revelation. <clears throat> and if you will, turn to uh, Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 20. And in uh, verse 11, it says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Now again, let's understand what's going on. This is at the end. We're, we're, we're at the end. We're, we're reading to the end of the book. And what I mean by that is, is that the, the, this world is about to be destroyed. In, uh, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 21, we see there's a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because the other one's done away with. The other one's gone. And he says here very clearly that at this point in time, the thousand years of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ has expired. Satan was loosed. He deceived the people again. People came and tried to expel Jesus Christ from Jerusalem. Dumb idea. It didn't work a thousand years before when they tried to repel him from the earth. What makes them think that it's going to work now? And then it's going to fail utterly. God's going to burn them up. The, the 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 antichrist, the beast, goes into the lake of fire. Uh, the the uh, the false prophet goes into the lake of fire, and Satan himself, the dragon, goes into the lake of fire forever. That's it. It's done. It's over with. God's won. Now everybody shows up in front of God, and it's time to be judged. This is called the Great White Throne Judgment, not to be confused with the Judgment Seat of Christ. Right. Judgment Seat of Christ is for believers. And what we've done with what we've been given and what our intent was and what our motives about it were. Why did we do what we did? Was it for good or was it for bad? God makes it clear. Did we do it for our own selfish motives? Or did we do it for the glory, praise, and honor of God? There's a big difference. It's really hard to look at a television evangelist and say, hey, look at him. He's doing it for the right reasons. That's not the case. 
That's a money-making operation is all that is. The money-making operation. But here we are, and this is where we find, we find everyone is now standing in front of God. And it says, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. You know, everybody says, well, I'm going to be, uh, you know, God's going to weigh the good and the bad over there. He's going to take a look at what I've done. Yeah, he is. But just remember, the wages of sin is death. Guilty of one sin, you die. And the second death is that lake of fire. So you can have done 3,000 good works and messed up one time. Death still awaits you. Death still awaits you. It's kind of like somebody that is a, a, you know, a mass murderer. You know, it used to be back in the day, and I'm talking way back when, that, you know, if you found somebody and they murdered 30 people, and they got 30 death sentences, well, you can't kill the guy 30 times, so he dies once. Even if he was found not guilty of 29 of those and was found guilty of one, back back in the day when the death penalty was given for those that were murdered, he would still have to die. And that's what happens here. And those books, that's what James is talking about being opened. John here is talking about it. James is talking about it. This is how people will be judged. Not by the standards of men. And this is important because he says, don't be biased based off of man's perception. Use godly judgment because you will be judged by God's standards, not man's. If we were judged by our own standards, man, we would get away with murder. Every last one of us, we justify it. But according to God, thou shalt not kill. He makes it clear. He makes it very clear. Going back over to James chapter 2, as we get through a little bit further, in verse 13, he says, For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. So I want to take a look at two verses here really quick. We're going to start looking at some of these things. This is where some of it starts getting a little heavier. Let's go over to the book of Zechariah first. Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. Now if I can get my pages to not stick together. There we go. Zechariah chapter 9. Excuse me. Chapter 7 verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 9. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, nor the stranger, nor the uh, the stranger, nor the poor. And none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. God's expectations, okay? God's expectations. And he said, when you're going to execute true judgment, you're going to show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. Mercy and compassion. That's the default. That's not the default today. That's not the default today. Again, you see some of the stupidest stuff. And and this is why, look, if people are going to do something stupid, do it in private. Don't do it in public. Because there's cell phones everywhere videotaping all this stuff. Not videotaping, recording and digital, whatever. You know, I, I just dated myself videotaping. <clears throat> Can see them out there with a, you know, camcorder or an eight millimeter <clears throat> slapping the VHS tape in there, you know? Um, 
But, you know, I saw this, these guys are getting in an argument at a gas station, a Costco gas station. Somebody cut in line at the Costco gas station. I guess it's worthy of death nowadays. Up in Seattle, Seattle of all places. These guys are having an argument. This one guy gets up and he's yelling and screaming at this other car. This one guy gets out of the car. He's obviously bigger than this other guy, but that doesn't matter. The small guy, he's got two Glocks on his hip. Two, one on each side, like he's a cowboy. Like, whatever. That's just bizarre. Total open carry. Uh, that's fine. Whatever. You can do that in the state of Washington. Just be careful about it if you're going to do it. Not the brightest thing in the world. But he's arguing with this guy, and he, I guess he's trying to intimidate him. And this big guy, he gets all upset. and He starts, you know, getting in the guy who starts pointing, you know, jabbing at his chest, the small guy's chest. And then the big guy gets all upset and goes into the back, takes what looks to be a duty belt for a police officer or a security officer, takes a baton out, one of those collapsible batons, extends it, and he's going to start beating the guy when the Glock guy pulls one of them out. And then all of a sudden, everything changes. The guy's like, oh, no, 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 no. let's calm down, let's calm down. <laughs> brought a club to a gunfight. That's a dumb thing to do. <laughs> First and foremost, these guys' like situational awareness went out the window because he should have seen the fact that he had two guns strapped to his hip. But 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 again, that's the world. That's how the world defaults. No compassion, no mercy, none of that. The other day, I was getting ready to check out of at a, 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 a grocery store. And this one guy's standing there, and I walk up behind him, and he and he goes, "Oh, oh, no, no, you you go ahead. Uh, you know, it's at the self checkouts." He goes, "No, you go ahead." I'm like, "Oh, no, 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 you were here first. He goes, "No, I insist." I said, "No, really, go honestly, go for it." And the cashier's like, "There's two of them open." <laughs> we're both kind of like hanging our heads and <laughs> arguing about that. You know, who goes first? You know, people sit there and go, oh, you know, you go. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I said, I'm too fat and too old to worry about stuff like that anymore. I don't care. Just go for it. I'm not, I'm not in a rush anymore. Even if I am in a rush, it doesn't matter, does it? But the end result is, is this is the default that God says that we're supposed to have. He, where he says that he executes true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. Now, this is important because he's just talking about people that don't show that. Uh, go go over to the book of Micah. Let's go over to Micah now in Micah chapter 6. <clears throat> Micah chapter 6. <clears throat> you can find Jonah, you can find Micah. They're close by. <clears throat> Micah chapter 6. Here's a verse that should be, a, if you're one of those people that underlines or highlights in your Bible or, or what you want to write notes on or something like that. Matthew, uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says, He showed thee, O man, what is good. You want a definition of what good is? Here we go. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? Justice, mercy, and humil- uh, humbleness. That's all God said he required. And you, can, you can take care of most of the law by just doing that right there. And that's where people don't understand this idea and concept of what mercy is. Mercy is something that should be preferred. Mercy should be at the first, if you will, at the very first reaction. Something, somebody does something so horrible, our, our, our thought processes should be geared towards saying, well, I'm going to execute mercy. Yeah, they may have done that. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just trust on the fact that Jesus Christ extended a huge amount of mercy to me. 
didn't turn me into a fine red mist where I stand. He saved my soul. He forgave my sins. I think I can extend a little bit of mercy to someone else that didn't do something as bad as I did to God. Turn over to to, to the book of Hosea. Hosea. Hosea chapter 6. You want to talk about a guy that had to learn how to have mercy? Hosea. Hosea was a prophet and he had a very unique ministry. What did he have to do? He had to go marry a, a woman of ill repute, a prostitute, a harlot, if you will. So that Hosea would understand what Israel was doing to God. And you could use that as an example. And he goes off and marries her, and what does she do? What does she do? I mean, what did, yeah, I'll get it out one of these days. What does she go out and uh, she she does what she does? Because that's her lifestyle. That's what she is. She plays the harlot on Hosea. What does God say? Take her back. Take her back. That's tough. Human beings can't even do that. Aren't you, aren't you just ever so thankful for the mercy of God? Hosea chapter 6. Take a look at what he says in verse 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You know, all that stuff that they had to do with the offerings and the sacrifices and things like that. God simply said, you know, all I really wanted was for you guys to exercise some mercy and get to know me. Think about that for a minute. Exercising mercy and getting to know God. That's what God desired for Israel. Wow. You know, that still kind of applies to us today. I can take that, and even though it was written to specifically here, Ephraim, uh, as part of the nation of Israel, I can still take that and I can still apply that today and say, if that's what God desired of Israel, he's probably still wants for me. It's probably still what he desires of me. Turn over to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. And and here's a very, very pertinent statement that Jonah makes when he realizes where he's at. Jonah says, out of the belly of hell cried I. He's not in a good place. At this point in time, he's in the belly of the whale. And what he's beginning to describe, you realize, is not the inside of a whale, but a place far more horrific. Jonah got to see that and come back from it. And what does he say here in verse 8 as he's going through this calling out to God? In verse 8, he says, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. So when an individual forsakes mercy, he makes it very clear here what they're doing. They, they, they specifically are observing lying vanities. They're believing in an empty, shallow, hollow lie. Just like what they're doing in James thinking that the guy that looks rich is going to be 
the good one to give them benefits. When the one that gives them the best benefits is God himself. They, they, they forsake their own mercy in, if you will, executing it and giving it out because they choose to observe a lie. They choose to believe that lie. They choose to follow it. Go back over to the book of James. In James chapter 2, as we continue reading through there, <clears throat> he makes it pretty clear here in verse 13, for, the, for he shall have judgment without mercy. Now, now this is, this is a tough thing to realize. He just got done saying that God's going to judge him. He's going to judge him according to his standards. But if they're an individual that doesn't exercise mercy, God's going to judge them without any mercy. Aren't you glad you're not living during that time? Have you always shown mercy when you're supposed to show mercy? I know I haven't. We begin to realize that's a requirement. This comes part of that faith with works, where we start getting into some of this deeper stuff here that we're going to see in the next few verses. Because in the next verse, in verse 14, he says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? Now that sounds really interesting considering all the stuff that we read in the Pauline epistles. Specifically Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For Bergaisi saved through what? Faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he's just asking and questioning, can faith save him? And the argument is this. He's saying there's a justification that comes about by the works. Now, we'll get into these verses in a moment, but over in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 9, it says how we are justified. We are justified by Jesus Christ. We are justified by his blood, not by our works. He's talking about Abraham being justified by his works. Now, let's get this straight. Abraham exercised faith when he believed God and he went to a land over there, according to Hebrews. Ten years down the road, God says, he was justified by exercising faith with works when he was willing to offer his son Isaac. Our justification is like that when you trust Christ as our Savior. Why? Because the payment has been made, the shed blood has been given, it's done. It's over. This is something that's a little different. You start trying to make Paul and James fit, you're going to wind up with some really weird doctrines. So we have to start understanding what he's talking about here. We're going to read through down through the rest of this here just for uh, some context so that we can get some idea of what we're talking about. It says in verse 15, If a brother or a sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled, Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful for the body. What doth it profit? Wait, we're supposed to take care of people? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. What work did you have to do to get your salvation to be justified? Not a thing. Not a thing. But keep this in mind, works is always present and works are always needed for salvation. Let me clarify this. Not what we do. It was the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection that, that fulfilled that part. Yes. Not us. Yes. Not what we did. Because our works can't save us. 
These guys are being required to do something. Not only are they believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, but now there's additional requirement. They've really, truly got to show it and mean it with sincerity. As you go through this a little bit further, he says, he's kind of, if you will, this fake little argument that he's, you know, talking about. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show you, uh, show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou, O vain man, that, uh, wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Now again, remember who he's talking to. Abraham, their father. Okay. Seest thou, uh, seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by his works was faith made perfect? The perfect work of faith was done on the cross. He says this in verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Adam believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see, then how? That by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Now that just goes right in the face of what Paul says. So how are we going to reconcile this? He says, Likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works? When she had received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now I'm going to say this. There's a lot of great practical applicational material here. Basically meaning that if we are saved, we better be showing it. The Christian application cannot be ignored here. The believer for this day and age, what, what is, what is, what is profitable to us cannot be ignored. If a person says, well, I have faith in Jesus Christ, praise God. Now show it. Not required for salvation. Now, I'm going to take a pause here in just a moment and, and just kind of, if you will, just briefly discuss a couple of things. There is something that God does that we refer to as dispensations. Paul talks about it. He even uses that word dispensation. He had been given a dispensation of grace. And that is an important thing to remember. So whether you call them dispensations or whether you call them ages, because that term is also used, it doesn't make a difference. Okay? Just like we talk about the rapture, that word rapture doesn't necessarily appear in scripture, neither does the word trinity. Okay? So let, let's, let's get that understanding. And there are people that run around out there today and say there's no such thing as dispensations. Everybody has been saved from the beginning to the end the same way. They all believe in Jesus Christ. I'm pretty certain that Adam did not believe in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Now that was revealed to him when he was in Abraham's bosom in paradise when Jesus Christ showed up and took them out of there. But but let's understand this. He wasn't believing on the shed blood of Jesus Christ for his his for forgiveness of sins. Neither was Moses. Neither was David. So so what were they looking towards? They were looking at what God had said and they were being obedient to it, which is what we talk about being faith, hearing God's word and being obedient to it. And that is something that is always necessary regardless of whatever age or dispensation you're in. Those elements are always present. Grace is always present. Faith is always present. Mercy is always present. Works are always present in one way, shape, or form. There's always an obedience that is also present. 
does it not tell us that we are to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ? He specifically says and uses that term in reference to salvation for individuals, for Gentiles, being obedient to the gospel. That's not a work. The work was finished by Jesus Christ for us right now. But God has an expectation. I mean, think about it. There's been seven, there's going to be seven dispensations that God is using. Now walk through them just briefly. And we've talked about this before. I've got some stuff that we can go over if you, if you got some questions later. It's not meant to be an in-depth study on dispensations. First dispensation, innocence. In the garden. What did they have to do? Simply obey one law. Don't eat that tree. Mankind says, there's just too much that God requires of me. If he was just to give me one law, I'd be able to follow it. Ah! (laughs) Not even close. Adam couldn't follow it. And he was created by God. The voice of God walked with him in the garden. He saw Eve form right before his eyes. Yet he still chose to disobey. The next dispensation that shows up after that is conscience. Conscience. Well, you know, I believe just everybody's got, you know, this innate thing about knowing what is right and what is wrong. Yeah, it's called the Word of God written in your heart, but okay, moving on. Well, I just believe that, you know, everybody's going to be led to do a certain thing. Let's, let's think about how that dispensation ended. It ended with eight people in a boat, an ark, and everyone else dead. That's where your conscience will lead you. That's where our conscience is leading us currently right now. Which is why God says, when we start getting closer to the end, it will be as in the days of Noah. Basically, everybody's doing right that which is, that which is right in their own eyes. Everybody is just following their own path. The world is being filled with violence. The heart of man is doing evil uh, continually. I mean, it, it's, it's getting to that point. We're not quite there. It looks like we're there. We're not quite there yet. Some places like Chicago may be already there. <laughs> but, you know, here we are in Ridgefield. It's, you know, it's not quite like that. But when the whole world is filled with that, wow. And violence is very well promoted today. It's very well promoted. God gives government because man needs to be governed. He ex- he gives the very first laws, if you will, written down that if you take a man's life, your life will be required over there in Genesis chapter 9. Next dispensation as once they get off the boat. How did that go? Man can't govern themselves. They all collect together and they all decide they're going to build a tower to heaven. He goes through all of these dispensations. I mean, he gives the law, or he gives family, then he gives law, uh, all of these things. How does it end? All of the dispensations end, if you will, in colossal failure because of man. Even to the point of where you get to the last dispensation, which is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And the millennial reign of Jesus Christ is nothing like we've ever seen on the face of the earth. Sin is judged immediately. There is no getting away with this stuff anymore. The earth's curse is lifted. People are living to be thousand years old. I mean, really old. They're saying, you know, if you die at a hundred years old, you're a baby. I mean, come on. That's amazing stuff. 
How does that dispensation end? Well, we just talked about it. They try to expel Jesus Christ off the earth. All of those things, and people will say, well, if Jesus Christ was ruling and reigning today, or if Jesus Christ came down today, if Jesus Christ showed up today, and he's done that, and mankind still refuses. The idea and the concept behind all of the dispensations is this, is to prove that man is without excuse. That when they stand in front of a holy and righteous God at the great white throne judgment, God is going to say, you couldn't even do that. Every argument. Nope. 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 All the way through. Man is without excuse. Man will stand guilty before God. Because of each person's own individual choice to sin. Unless somebody has trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And their name is found in the Lamb's Book of Life. If their name is found in the Lamb's Book of Life, the payment has been made. It's done. When we get to this part here, we're talking about a period of time where people are going to be entering into that last dispensation, that last kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ ruling and reigning. God sets the expectation of how people are going to get in that kingdom. He sets it very clear. Not only do they need to believe, but they also need to be demonstrating that. Because he just pointed out, he says, the devils believe, and they tremble. But they certainly aren't exercising their faith in doing what is right. They're not believing God at his word and being obedient. As a matter of fact, they're doing the exact opposite. Besides that, Jesus Christ didn't die for the devils. He didn't die for Satan. And they're, they, they cannot be redeemed. They make that choice, they're done. They're done. They're not the same as us. And there's a group of people running around, Rob Bell and all that emergent progressive Christianity church. Uh, they, they, they play that hype up and they say, oh, in the end, everyone's going to be saved. That's not what the book says. That's not what the book says. So we need to start reconciling what we're reading here with what Paul's writing. And the way that we do that is we study ourselves to study to show ourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. We start looking at it and saying, okay, now I understand why God was showing this during this age and during this age and during this age and during this age and what the purpose behind it is. We are blessed right now to be in this age. Look, if you were born during the time of Moses and the law and David and you wanted entrance, you wanted, you know, that opportunity, you had to become a Jewish proselyte. Still, even then, there were certain rules and restrictions of things you could not do that the Jew could. But that's how you, you did those things. And God throughout, throughout the Jewish history shows that people did that. Rahab. Ruth. I mean, there's just two right off the, the, the top right there. There was many others that did that. Many others. But we begin to see that God starts showing this, and if you will, demonstrating it, not to sit there and get us, if you will, confused, but to show us that, hey, these individuals, these Jews, God still has an expectation of them. 
God's not done with Israel. And you know what? Every Christian should be absolutely ecstatic over that. Why is that? Because it shows the mercy of God. It shows how great he truly is. But God is going to expect them to step up. To be what he's called them to be. Now again, we take a look at these general epistles. Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude, and even the book of Revelation. We find that God is showing some very specific things. I want to point out a couple of things real quick. I know I'm looking at the clock. I know I'm seeing the time here. Please bear with me. You got to go. You got to go. I want you to turn to, to one passage and then we'll just kind of pause here. This is a little bit of a teaser. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> In the book of Matthew, throughout it, you see a lot of sayings that Jesus Christ starts off by saying, and the kingdom of heaven is like unto this. And he gives a parable. That kingdom of heaven, again, keep that in mind. We're talking about the physical, literal, millennial reign of Jesus Christ. This is a king talking to his constituents about how they will get entrance into that kingdom. How they will get entrance into that kingdom. Now, let's just be very clear. During the tribulation period, it does not operate the same way. Meaning, if we sin now, praise God, it's still under the blood. We still go to God, we confess, we make it right, we repent, we turn to God, we, we, we go through the corrective process. That's the way it's supposed to work, okay? You realize during the tribulation period that there's a requirement for individuals, believers, not only for them to exercise faith and works the way he, James is describing it, but there's also other stuff they have to do to ensure that they don't go to hell. Let's just name the big one. Don't take the mark. Don't take the mark. There, there, there have been people that have, have done stuff that, you know, they, they've, they, 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 they've marked themselves with the number 666 on there in defiance of God, and they have turned around and trusted Christ as their Savior. Well, the beast isn't around. The Antichrist isn't around. He might be, I don't know, because Jesus could come back tomorrow. But, but the fact is, is his, his government isn't in, isn't in play right now. Social security number is not the mark of the beast. The COVID vaccine is not the mark of the beast. Okay. <laughs> Let's just get this straight. Okay. Those are not the mark of the beast. You know, if you get one of those chips that has the, all your medical knowledge in there, um, that's not the mark of the beast. For people like me, that might be a good thing to have. Because the other day somebody sent me a list of my medical records for the last little bit, and it was a book like that. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, I can see the benefits of having it on a microchip. <laughs> but, you know, those aren't the mark of the beast. People get stuff like that, that, that they are still saved. Okay? They don't lose their salvation. They're not reprobate that they cannot be saved. There are people that are running around today here in the city of Vancouver preaching things along the lines of if you are a homosexual and you've ever engaged in any of that activity, you can never get to heaven. You can never be saved. That is a blasphemous lie. Yeah. That that itself is hateful. Yeah. God doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, he said, such were some of you, meaning that some people came out of that, got saved, and weren't doing it anymore. So, yeah, they can be saved. Those are people that don't read their Bible. Those are people that don't study it. What they're doing is they're believing what a man tells them. A bunch of heresy. 
But but here in, in, in Matthew chapter 24, and I want you to take a look at verse 13, he makes this statement. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. What have we had to endure? What was endured? The cross. Who endured it for us? Jesus Christ did. Now that right there, and he says that a couple of times. He also says it in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. We'll look at that in just a moment, or not in the, in the next week, Lord willing. But he makes it very clear here. There's some different expectations. If people are going through the tribulation period, what God expects of them and what God is requiring of them, and very specifically for entrance into that kingdom, this is what he's now requiring for the nation of Israel. Rewind back to what we were just read over there in Zechariah chapter 9 and Micah chapter uh, chapter 6 where he was talking about showing mercy and compassion. And that it was, what does the Lord require of thee? But mercy, to do mercy. That's what he's requiring of Israel. Now, we got to remember, we get to read the whole book, but not all of it is written to us. Which is why we have to understand context, who is writing it, who it's being written to, and what the general understanding of the theme of the book is. That's why James is a very pivotal book. Yeah, there's a lot of application for us Christians today. I mean, if you're going to do counseling, good grief, James chapter 3 has got it about people shooting their mouth off. But the Jew during that period of time, they can't. Man, are you glad that you don't have to go through that. Could you imagine having to watch your mouth? I say stupid things all the time. I say dumb stuff. God has this expectation of the Jew. We'll get into that more next week. I know I'm way out of time, but let's go ahead and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for what you've given to us. Thank you again for an opportunity to study your word. And Lord, as we just barely begin to broach the surface of this faith with works, Lord, I pray you just continue to show us and demonstrate it to us who this is written to, why it's important for us to understand, what application we can get, and what the doctrinal, doctrinal implications are specifically for those that it is written to. And Lord, I just thank you again for loving us and caring for us and giving us mercy and those new mercies every morning that, Lord, we we, we just should be thankful for. I pray, Lord, that we would just keep that in mind. And Lord, as we continue to go through this week and close out the year, that, Lord, we would just be thankful for all that we have been given, all that we have received by your hand. And Lord, that we would just purpose in our hearts and desire to please you more in this year to come as we finish out this year, every single day, Lord, to love you more. And I ask and pray this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.